A vague disclaimer is no one's friend. This podcast will look at episodes in relation to Buffy and Angel as a whole, and therefore contains spoilers for the entirety of both series. If you haven't seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series, go and watch them before you listen to this. Remember, you've been warned. The hardest thing in this world is to live in it. That's why there's us, champions. We live as though the world were as it should be, to show it what it can be. The Earth is definitely doomed. It's Tuesday, so it must be time to return to the Hellmouth. We're going through the Buffyverse episode by episode and a look back at Joss Whedon's iconic shows. I'm MC, and I'm here with... It's Andy. It's David. It's Jan. And I'm Logan. This week, we are talking about Lover's Walk, which is episode 8 of season 3. It was written by Dan Weber, directed by David Semmel, and originally aired November 24th, 1998. One thing that I found really interesting about this is that this is a pretty big episode like a lot of shit happens so i'm like it must have been written mm-hmm. by like jane espenson or somebody like marty noxon but it was written <laughs> by dan weber and no offense to him but this is the first thing that he's written and he only does one other episode this season wow mm-hmm. which yep. is what which is it's the zeppo, the zeppo. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I really love this episode. And- I, it's definitely two solid episodes. And this one is a really strong... I mean, I thought it was mm-hmm. somebody bigger, like, did I know this name? I should yeah. know this name, right? And then, yeah. apparently not. Yeah, he does eventually go on to become an executive producer on Futurama and The Simpsons, so he goes on to, like, wider pastures of bigness. So, I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't a matter of... And lots of comedy. I mean, yep. yeah, I mean, lots of comedy, but also comedy with a heart, especially Futurama. I freaking love Futurama. Oh, me too. No, Futurama is just a fantastically written show. Yeah, and yeah. so I can see that, like, he definitely has that mixture of comedy and pathos and all those things that, like, yeah, no, good good job. Yeah, and also there's a lot of characterization here that I think you can see also happens in Futurama also, where it's not just, you know, joke, 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 pathos, pathos. You're actually getting character development and stuff in the middle so great job i'm kind of thinking that it was just like he had the job for like this season and then he went on to like okay i'm gonna do this other stuff because i can they're offering me to do more and they had brought so many writers into this that it wasn't a matter of you're not good and not working out it's just you know because he mm-hmm. did he did do two pretty solid episodes if you get a call to the big leagues like the simpsons you take it i mean i love buffy better than the simpsons but that's that's a pretty good get especially for like a comedy right oh yeah yeah especially i mean you know the simpsons have been on for what like 47 years at this point so yeah it's it's a solid gig for as long as you want it also it may just be that he may have felt that that was more his more his voice his area yeah his voice and his calling but this is still an awesome awesome episode we start out with a not too great scene in my opinion and but of course most of that is because of the plot line that won't die yes god but it's it's coughing up blood on the landing it's going away soon is it because of willow's dora the explorer sweater what no. oh it's because of willow and xander her her sweater looks like dora the explorer. oh i didn't even think about that by me it's hideous y'all <laughs> it's the only thing i can focus on that scene i'm like oh are y'all having emotional drama i cannot look away from her sweater i feel like i'm having a seizure i didn't have that much emotional drama oh just like... the whole sitting together on a, on a bench wrong because they don't know how to use benches because they're terrible cheating monsters <laughs> right exactly but but mostly this scene's about sat scores i, I was also so. <laughs> focusing on the fact that i i mean this is the first time he always writes xander shut up i wrote willow shut up because oh, yeah. she's, yeah. she's oh, yes. you know 
all, all in angsting over the fact that she got 740 verbal. In 1998, the average verbal score was 502. And <laughs> the average Princeton and Yale prospective students had verbal scores of between 600 and 700. Okay. Shut up, Willow. <laughs> yeah, shut up, Willow. It is a character trait of Willow's that she wants to be perfect. It is in character, yes. The writers just didn't understand the damn scores. I don't understand SAT scores because in New Mexico, you don't have to take them. If you're going to a state school, you can take the ACTs oh. instead. Oh, the ACT. Take the ACT instead. If it makes you feel any better, no one really understands True, true. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I understand them less now because they've changed them. They have them changed them, yeah. Back from the Dark Aiders. I mean, I know there's like three scores now and there's different numbers. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think totally. I, I understood Buffy's more because I, you know, I took my SATs in 1978 or mm. 1979 or something like that. And in an interesting coincidence, Buffy's combined score is the same as oh, mine. Oh, wow! wow. Smarty pants. Willow's Willow Willow's verbal is slightly higher than mine, though. <laughs> One thing that bugs me throughout this episode, everyone's like, "Buffy, you got these great SAT scores. You could get in wherever you wanted." And it's like. It doesn't work like that. What's your GPA? You couldn't. You've been expelled. You're toast. You actually have to have a decent academic record as well. You have to have high scores, but then you need a, G- a high GPA. You need, you know, electives. You need volunteering, blah, blah, blah. Le- good letters of rec. Teachers don't even know who the hell Buffy is. They're not going to write her a good letter of rec. Your SAT scores, I mean... It helps. It's such a Hollywood way of looking at things. They're always like, the SATs mean everything. I mean, they did that on fucking Saved by the Bell, where Zach Morris had, like, high SAT scores, and it's like, you can get in anywhere. And it's like, it's Zach fucking Morris. He's not getting in wherever the fuck he wants. (laughs) I love that you just brought Saved by the Bell into this, because that's golden for a tv show like this it's the easy way to show that the person you think isn't going to do well academically is actually smart that's it's it's it has nothing to do with reality but it's it's a trope and it's you know even xander acts surprised when cordy gets a good score we know that cordy is a good student someone like cordy and someone like willow that both have high sat scores and I'm going to assume that Cordy's like a straight A student or at least like A's, a B plus, B pluses right, yeah. kind of thing that, that they and Cordy gets into really good schools. So out of all of the scoops, I actually think Cordelia probably has the easiest time getting into any schools. Because she's got cheerleading and she's got all this stuff on her transcript. Mm-hmm. Well-rounded student. Right. Yeah. And also she probably has people through her family that will write her glowing letters of rec on top of everything else. And she may have ends, she may be a legacy. But yeah, I, like they get act so surprised about Cordy. At least verbally, Cordy's extremely verbal and you can you know she's well-read, even though she plays dumb sometimes. So that was like another like shut up Xander moment. Well, she even <laughs> says, I know how to hide this. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly what she says, which is terrible. Which really which ticks me awful. off. And then we have Cordy saying, who in their right mind would want to come back here? And Spike returns to the hell <laughs> yeah. see what See what I did there? I love how they bookend this with School Hard, because that was such an iconic entrance. And I know he's still evil and stuff, but I still judge Spike for drinking and driving. don't drink and drive we we discussed that we were going to discuss this like how the hell do vampires get drunk they don't breathe they don't like digest stuff properly i mean i know there's weirdness with like you know drinking blood or whatever how do they get drunk it's funny anyway but how do vampires get drunk well i i just always assume the physiology of the vampires in the buffy verse was 
I don't know, more closely aligned with humanity? I don't know. The answer is the show doesn't fucking care. It's what the plot requires. As far as the breathing thing is, because it comes up again and again throughout the series, when, when Spike is getting tortured later on and he's getting drowned, it's pointless. But I think, but the only time we actually see breathing or not being able to breathe up as a plot point is in season one so that Xander could save Buffy, you know? Is that wrong? So maybe they were just like, we're going to scrap this mythology and move along. In fact, here, I, I forget, does Spike say, I don't breathe or I don't have to breathe? I'm pretty sure he says, I don't breathe, which is why the other thing sort of twigged me, like, if you're completely dead, how do you get drunk? I think maybe Spike was almost being facetious when he said, you know, I don't breathe. Because obviously he does. Oh, he's basically fucking with Angel at that point. And I have seen fan wanks regarding the whole Prophecy Girl thing in that Angel has dead breath. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Worst morning breath ever. He needs Cordelia's toothbrush. Toothbrush. Yes. (laughs) There you go. But it's so nice. Like that. It's just great. And I just my note just says Spike. You know, because it's so nice to see him back. I have a couple of notes throughout this. Just, just, and I'm not sure if it's a stunt stunt double or James himself doing really good physical humor. Oh, this episode he just rolls out of that car when he falls in the courtyard. Good mm. stuff. I don't know if it's him. I or not, think but most of the really... physical humor, the dropping, the rolling, I think that's all James. I think a lot of it you is James. You know what James. I mean? Like, because yeah. those are pretty yeah. minor drops that can be accomplished with just yeah. having a pad under you and an actor that isn't afraid to fall on a pad. James is so great in this. A couple early pieces of trivia. One, doing this episode, this was just supposed to be a fun, no, let's have Spike come back. And then Joss was so impressed by James in this episode that he's like, I'm going to bring you back to the regular in season four. Also, Mm -hmm. in terms of doing stunts, James burned himself during the the fire scene. Ouchie. You can tell in the scene that that's all James because there aren't any cutaways. Well, we end up having Spike go to the warehouse, which I find really interesting that he goes to the warehouse that i mean of course he has to go there because angel is at the mansion on crawford street but i needed to come up with a reason like an in-universe reason why spike would do that just off the bat and for me it's actually it's like the warehouse was the last place spike was happy that actually makes a i've always assumed that also interesting drew's dolls are all there that true drew's dolls are all there drew has a lot of dolls though i think yeah i think she travels with miss edith little caches of them throughout the world but i don't see she'd leave any of them anywhere oh maybe those are just her burned dolls so she yeah i think there are some at crawford street because what in i think beauty and the beast when buffy locks angel up you see like a bunch of dolls that she like pushes out of the way so i think drew just has a ton of dolls i think spike is always like look at this new doll i got you she tortures them a lot and yeah a lot of them burned up when giles went all fire starter on the warehouse i love james singing my way it's super sexy. yes he is a good singer he is a really good singer don't like ghost of the robot i don't either much but he has a, a really nice voice yeah i actually did see him in concert at a convention once back when i still liked Spike. I think I remember when you actually saw him. I remember you talking about it, but he's got a lovely voice. And also, I just, I like the the nod to Sid Vicious, so. And then we get into Cordelia and Xander talking about bowling. (laughs) And Cordelia looks super cute in that plaid skirt. It's, Mm. yeah, all the outfits are Besides the Dora the Explorer outfit, they're all super, super cute. What does date this episode? She's like, yeah, I just got those pictures developed. Developed. Uh, I (laughs) I miss those days. I still like proper film, but I like 
the immediacy of like not proper film. So I mean, granted, we're all <laughs> so old that we wouldn't know the answer to it. But what do kids hang in their lockers these days? Do they like print out photos from Instagram? I assume. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Do if... kids do kids have lockers these days, or are they just like constantly in threat of someone's gonna put something in them? Who has a printer? Even <laughs> the printer. As, as the youngest, even in my, I'm 10 years out from high school, even then we didn't really hang things in our lockers. Honestly, a lot of schools, your lockers are so far out of your way most of the day that I would just carry all my shit with me. I'm actually pretty sure that in the brief time when I did have a locker, I had a Buffy poster of Of course you did. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you did. On brand. On brand, yeah. MC. <laughs> I am mad at Willow and Xander for a lot in this episode, but the whole bowling thing ticks me off in this double dating thing. Like, I mean, I know they're also overcompensating. They never really say that, but they are. But they're celebrating their SAT scores. They're all so proud of Buffy, but they don't fucking include her in it. If <laughs> I Buffy. Yeah. yeah. And it's like this big, and they make it a big deal that like double date. So it's not like we're going to, a bunch of friends are going to hang out. We just happen to be couples. Double dating is like, no, we're being, we're doing couple things, which really sucks for Buffy. I know like Xander and Angel still have like issues with each other, but maybe try to accept that Buffy is just friends, air quotes, with Angel and invite him along. Yeah, well. Or maybe invite Faith because Faith yeah, is around. Yeah. I got really upset on Buffy's behalf. Yeah, no, that that does suck. No, I agree with yeah. you. You know, with the, the, the plot that won't die, they'll, they'll, they'll know. And I'm like, what they'll know is that you two are goddamn idiots. <laughs> Why? I wish I didn't want to punch you both right now. And it really would have come off better for them if it had been a friend group rather than this double mm. date thing. Right. Yes. Again, goddamn idiots. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I mean, I, again, it's just, as we've said before, a lot of this is just to push a certain plot line that we all hate as compared to it just being organic within the storyline so they've got yeah. to do this because but it sucks probably the most realistic thing about that entire plot line is the fact that when they try to like do something to like hide it they're just flailing they give it no thought they're just <laughs> like ah you gotta do something <laughs> and i think the only good thing that came out of this entire plot line is the next scene with us oh my god I just... dispenser. yes Oh, get a partner that looks at you the way that Oz looks at Willow, because that's like, Check. yeah, I mean, that's like really the, the, the romantic ideal at that point. It's like the sweetest, like geekiest, wonderful thing in the world. You know, flowers are fine, but it's a fucking witch. It's, it's this head, whole so. thing of, you know, this isn't anything of value, but it made, it made me think of you. That is the, that is the most beautiful type of de- gift. There's also like a tacit, well, I say tacit, but maybe just a quiet support mm-hmm. he's showing like, Hey, this is something you're exploring. Yeah. This is something you're doing. I support mm-hmm. you. I think it's great. Here's this present that made me think of this part of you. And it's not just this made me think of you. It's also this is something I I know you'll appreciate. It's like you'll like this because I know you. You know, when you're in a relationship and I've, you know, I've been in plenty in the past. It's like, you know, you can get like really expensive things that you don't want. But when somebody gives you something that's that personal and just like, I thought of you when I saw this and it actually means something, you know, when they thought of you. It's like, that's like the greatest thing in the world. And I was just like, oh, my God, Oz. And the thing is, we just just juxtaposed that with the scene of Cordelia having Xander's. Yeah, she jokes about it, saying that she's good looking in the pictures. But at the same time, she's giving him 
that kind of she's real open with him she's real breezy with him they're not bickering i mean they do their little bit but that's just their relationship right and so she in her own courty way has done something just as romantic as oz has done for willow i'm obviously like we swoon over the oz stuff because it is so sweet but cordelia has done something just as sweet and is just as betrayed as oz the only complaint i can have about this is that I wish this had been, as far as Xander and Cordelia is concerned, I wish this had been their relationship for longer because they're still so antagonistic up till this point. And it is a gag that's played to, or it's a bit rather, that's played to make people feel even worse for what Cordelia is about to go through. And that's fine, but it's believable with Oz and Willow because that's the nature of their relationship. But we don't see this kind of sweet acceptance with, Xander and Cordy as much and it kind of bumps me out I think it's a missed opportunity and it would have made it even more of a gut punch I think their thinking was we're gonna we're gonna put it all in this episode so that we get the full smack in the face and they really should have drawn it out over more episodes I would disagree I think that we've seen this a lot from Cordelia I think in Go Fish we saw her accepting the fish monster thinking it was Xander I think we saw her support of Xander during Becoming in the last episode she was talking about how she thinks she's in love with Xander and also in terms of the pictures that she hangs up she could say that she's cute all she wants. One of those pictures only has Xander in it. We've talked about this before that part of the problem is, and I wish they had corrected this more, that Cordelia, it always comes off that Cordelia is way more into Xander than Xander's ever into Cordelia. And that really sucks for her because she, she also deserves better. To both of your points, yeah, absolutely. I think I didn't articulate it as well. I wish that Xander would behave more like Cordy does or to some extent the way Oz does. But I'm, I, that's probably asking a lot from him, I guess. I do think that this is the episode where we see them the for the first time really like 100% comfortable in this relationship, though. Because there's always some kind of caveat or something before. I mean, Cordy shows that she really cares for Xander, but they're like, they're moments. Whereas here, it kind of feels more like it's what's actually going on and it's not... There are no bumps there. And it's it would like, be nice if that had gone on a little longer. Yeah, I mean, exactly. With Logan. Yeah. Okay, so um, just aside from the relationships, I'm a Pez dispenser collector. I, lo- I fucking love Pez dispensers. Aww. One of my friends gave me, it wasn't this exact one, but she found me a witch Pez dispenser as a birthday gift one time just because of this show. Like, again, that's a thoughtful gift. That wasn't a romantic relationship. That was just a friend that, was like, oh, we both really like Buffy and I know you love Buffy, so let me buy you something that reminds you of Buffy. I have actually looked on eBay to see if I can find this one, and it's totally available. You can get pick it up for between, like, 5 to $15. So I nice. think I'm probably going to buy this exact one just so I have it. And also, Oz might talk about how they don't have a werewolf they and have they have to settle for a wacky cartoon dog, but they have had a wolfman has dispensers since the 1960s. I was going to ask, because I was like, he has got to be wrong. <laughs> I knew he was wrong because I remember seeing either with if it was the groovy ghoulie ones or the universal monster mm. ones. I think it was just so Oz could say wacky cartoon dog. Well, yes, but I, I but, but <laughs> this is our job to like point out this no, kind of stuff. And I yes. did look up, you know, what kind of werewolf Pez dispenser would be available in 1997. And certainly Pez, there's a lot more Pez dispensers now. So there's probably plenty of werewolves mm. now. 
But back at, uh, then, I mean, it was probably really pricey because it was a vintage one from the 60s, but they did have a Universal Monsters Wolfman. I'm going to say something really controversial and, in my opinion, really brave. <laughs> Pez are disgusting. I, I, I just collect the dispensers. I do eat the candy when I buy the dispensers because they come with the candy, but I would much rather have sweet tarts. Mm. It's, oh, yeah. it's basically oh, yeah. a blocky <gasps> oh, Necco hey, wafer. Hey, hey. Mm. New business idea? New business oh. idea. Yeah. Pez dispensers, sweet tarts inside. Sweet tarts I inside. love it. So, yeah. but <laughs> awesome. moving on, we, we get a scene with Giles and Buffy together. I love this. I do too. I What I love most is that, mm-hmm, yeah. What I love most about this is don't do anything rash is clearly don't have sex mm. with Angel. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, that's what they're both saying. I, I feel like there's a, a missing scene, and I don't mean this in a negative or bad way, where they have actually worked out some of their issues from last episode. You know what I mean? He was so angry at her, and rightfully so. I have a feeling that there's something we don't see. And again, not in a bad way, because I think what the writing here shows is that they have gotten over. Obviously, Giles is wary. He doesn't want her to see Angel, but he's trusting her again, and she's confiding in him about the college stuff, and that they've, just in a really subtle way, that they've had that conversation and they've moved past it. I I think the scene is so sweet. Giles is so clearly proud because you see him looking over that paper for a long time. I love that he talks about how she needs to live up to her potential outside of being the slayer but then there is also this small part of me it is that you know that part that does not believe in humanity that thinks it's like does giles want buffy to go off to college so that she can get out of sunnydale and get away from angel it's i think giles does want what's best for buffy but i also think what's best for buffy that might be getting away from this whole environment i think it's like 75 25 he's still devoted to his role as a watcher and he has not thrown off the yoke of the watchers council so i mean the fact that he's saying as much as he is is a big thing but he's still kind of in that world where it's like you know yeah your duty is still important but i i think giles knows that there can be a balance for buffy and he wants that for his for his child actually and i just love that Buffy goes to Giles and has this really, again, I, you know, I love Buffy Giles scenes because they're so, they're so sweet. And again, I, I've praised the writers and the writing team for weaving these moments in this whole season of their really solid and really functional relationship because they're going to take it away in a few episodes. And it, and it's smart writing and it's smart plotting. Like we've talked many times about, I wish this had been weaved in before this, but in this case, and there's going to be another case that's going to come up here in just a minute. They are weaving this in in a really good way. Oh, yeah. I mean, for, for all the times we complain about things they haven't woven in, there's there's an equal amount of stuff that they have woven in that is great. It's interesting that Giles, you know, Giles can actually say to Buffy, maybe you should go to college because they're in a unique situation where there is another Slayer. Technically, if you think about it, Buffy has fulfilled her duty. Yes, Yes, I did think about that, actually. <laughs> you are the slayer until you die. She died. There is another slayer. So technically, she should be able to do whatever the fuck she wants. Giles realizes that. And unfortunately, it is at Faith's detriment because Faith has to take over then. But we'll, we'll see how things turn out. 
fair. <laughs> I, I think about this a lot, actually. Like, how much of Buffy echoes in Veronica Mars? Oh, yeah, it was a major influence. Major. In this particular case, spoilers for Veronica Mars. At the end of the series, Veronica goes off to college. In the movie that got made later, she basically gets pulled back and loses her job in the process and is back. She can't escape either. Got excellent points and everybody should watch Veronica Mars because it's really fucking good. It's really oh yeah, good show, Veronica yeah. Mars is great. And oh, really... they're trying to, uh, they're trying to get a, another series, I think is what they're working Oh, are they? Oh, cool. We're talking about Veronica Mars right now because we want to put off talking about this next You know, scene. You know what my note says? It says, <laughs> I hate this storyline so much, I don't even want to talk about it anymore. Like, we've belabored this. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I hate them, I hate these two so much. Those are my only two notes on the next scene. Kill it, kill it with fire. I should bring this up now. I Like, while I was watching the episode, I didn't feel like this at all. But thinking about some stuff t- earlier today, I actually kind of feel badly for Xander. Girl! Give me a minute. <laughs> I, I think Xander truly cares for all these people in his life. But he's so poorly equipped to deal with humans. Like, I, like he literally doesn't have the tools. It's such a shame that he's such an asshole because he kind of doesn't know how not to be. And that's the only reason I feel badly for him. I mean, yeah, here, here, it's like, fuck you. Yeah, knowing his family background, I'm not excusing Xander. I will never excuse Xander, but he does not have tools. I'm going to go the other way. I I feel really bad for Willow. Personally speaking, as somebody who at 16 was like in love with her best friend, but also dating somebody else. And you suddenly, someone you've been pining after for, you know, your whole life, I guess, in the case of her. And suddenly they're, they're giving you the attention you craved for so long and not that long ago. I mean, of course she's going to fuck up and, and they're going to fuck up. But yeah, you're right. Port <laughs> Sander never stood a chance. I agree with you about Willow. She doesn't have the tools either. Because her parents are cold people. She's a little better with people, generally. But in this situation, she is totally out of her depth. My problem with these two is they're so goddamn selfish. They don't even attempt... Willow starts to in this episode, she starts to think that, oh, we've got to do things to, you know, stop this. And we will get into that later because I have a whole mess of stuff to say about that. But Xander, the entire time, he's just like, can I chew on your ear? Oh, am I going to be tickling somebody? I'm like, fuck Xander. (laughs) And I know he's had a hard life, but that does not excuse how poorly he treats Cordelia, how poorly he treats Willow. How poorly he treats Oz. He has no respect for anybody. And I can understand Willow's point of her being in love. That even comes up later on after this whole thing has ended. When she finds out that Xander has slept with Faith, she ends up crying in the bathroom. So the feelings are obviously still there. But still, just how everybody's handled this is terrible and I hate everybody. I chalk that up to the writers totally. I don't want to say in defense of Willow, but I can sort of understand Willow. Because if you think also of Willow, who's somebody who like didn't have anybody, who was in love with Xander for so long. She still loves Oz and she wants Oz. But there's a weird, again, having been in that situation to some extent at once at one point in my life, there's a weird ego thing, especially when nobody has like noticed you when you're that much of a wallflower. And suddenly you not have one awesome person who, who wants you. You've got two not that xander really is awesome but she sees him as such and so she's kind of on an ego rush it's a shitty thing it's not a good thing 
but she's kind of like I think she's riding that kind of ego thing that oh my god all of a sudden I have I'm, I'm not just like stuck with one person not that she's stuck with Oz but now I suddenly have two people that want me and maybe I'm not so awful after all you're just defending her out of redhead solidarity <laughs> <laughs> nice Jewish witches you know what can I say <laughs> their relationship is all based off of how dirty and naughty it is for them to be going around because once Willow and Oz and Xander and Cordelia break up, they never for one second even entertain the possibility of getting into a proper relationship. And I mean, even Xander, uh, Willow and Oz get back together, but Cordelia and Xander don't. You would think that if they were actually serious about being in a relationship, that Xander might come up to Willow and be like, so are we going to give this a real shot? Truth. Preach. It's it's hormones. Let's chalk it up to them being children, hopefully. But I know adults who do this shit all the time, so who can say? We've talked about this way longer, considering we didn't want to talk about it. But the good thing is it's almost over and we won't have to, like, deal with it. Thank God. Except for the fallout, you know, very soon. Uh, but we get a, a very lovely scene with Buffy and Joyce. And Joyce is being so proud and happy. Which is nice. She's starting to become the Joyce I like. I do have one question, though. Where did Joyce get all that paperwork from colleges? Buffy literally got her scores today. Oh, like she isn't the kind of mom who's like just slipping shit into her bag and stuff. No, but I mean, everyone was like, no, Buffy's not going to go to these good schools like Brown. I mean, she specifically mentioned Brown. And Northwestern. <laughs> right. In those days, didn't you, ha- we had to like mail the school? Yeah, but that's the thing. You had to mail stuff. You didn't get stuff from a bunch of schools that you didn't think you were going to apply to. The beginning of her senior year, 10 to 1, Joyce wrote all these schools and got this material <laughs> just to, just to just in case. touch it. <laughs> this scene is interesting. I mean, it's a very short scene, but it made me really think about Buffy's future looks really bright for a hot minute and then it's going to be taken away again. But then I realized it doesn't get taken away because I think season four, it's about many things, but it's finding that school life, work, slay balance for Buffy, which goes not that bad. And there's definitely things, but the schooling for Buffy in season four is actually a pretty positive thing. Up until Joyce gets sick, it's it's going pretty well. School slaying, everything is kind of working out in Buffy's favor. And what happens with Joyce, Buffy like dropping out and everything, that is completely, you know, understandable. That is life stuff. Yeah, that's not academic stuff. It seems like Buffy's doing really well in season four, which season four has its issues. But I kind of do love seeing Buffy engaged in university life and what that looks like. And obviously we'll be talking about that a lot once we get to season four. But yeah, I, I just I really like Joyce in the scene that she is. I mean, she's not even saying that Buffy needs to abandon the slaying. She's just really looking out for Buffy's best interests and everything. You can slay and study. I wonder how much of it has to do with the writers maybe initially not being sure what they were going to do with Joyce, whether or not they were going to have her be this, um, not active necessarily, but aware and supportive part of Buffy's life. Because so much of the Slayer mythology and the other Slayers we see don't have that kind of relationship with her, with their parents, which is kind of the thing about Buffy. She has these, these ties to a life. I wonder if so much of our previous issues with Joyce were them sort of waffling about maybe where they were going to go with her. And you see them sort of settle on her being this part of Buffy's life and being aware. I hope I'm just trying to excuse how shitty Joyce is. 
<laughs> for a while. I mean, I think there's definitely growth. And obviously when she finds out that Buffy's the Slayer, she doesn't want to fully accept it. But she tries. She gets much better at it as time goes on. I, I think it's a really positive scene. So I wonder if a little bit, and it's not to knock it, that maybe Joyce still doesn't quite get the enormity of slaying so she thinks you know that she can do college and slaying at the same time but not in a bad way she's just really proud of her and also you know it's an addition but to be fair giles has said to her that he thinks this might be a possibility yeah and she says i've had a conversation with mr giles joyce is completely in the right in this situation because at this point they think that faith is going to be able to take over and Giles has said that they think that they can work things out. Here's the one thing that I don't like about this scene, and that is the edit that happens between this scene and the next scene, because Joyce asks, is there anything that's keeping you here? And then they immediately go to Angel, and I'm like, this is the worst fucking reason for Buffy to say in Sunnydale. But I think she realizes it by the end of the episodes. I mean, I think the reason that the, 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 the cut is there is because this will be brought up and resolved by the end of this episode. Here's my problem with this. This episode is fucking terrible when it comes to Buffy and Angel because they set up all of this stuff about how Buffy and Angel can't be together, they're so in love, but two episodes from now, they will end up being together and that will go on through the end of the season. And Buffy actually has no agency in what happens in her relationship with Angel because Angel decides that he's going to leave because it's what's best for her. Great point. Very good point. And we will definitely get into more of that as we go through the season. Yeah, you're right. Overall, that that is true. Although at the end of this episode, I think she shows some agency. It doesn't stick. I think it might be actually one of the problems with this episode being written by somebody who is not one of the regular writers in that it, there's very little follow through in their breakup in this episode. The episode goes out of its way to go, Buffy's reason for staying here would be angel and i'm sitting here going <laughs> what's keeping angel in sunnydale it always bothers me that like the woman has to stay where the guy is if buffy wants to go and go to brown like if there's is there a law that says angel can't pick up and move and go to live in providence rhode island there are no vampires in providence i mean granted there's a hellmouth, but he could he's, he doesn't have a job he doesn't have family he could follow her if he wants to if the need to be with her was that important leaving aside the whole societal problem with that that it's always the woman who has to move just like practically in this instance it's like angel could just leave and go wherever the hell buffy goes that's a terrible idea but <laughs> it's not a problem because <laughs> there's literally nothing holding him in sunnydale either other than buffy so if she goes somewhere like i said there are vampires in other parts of the country we know this she could go to school in cleveland <laughs> <laughs> but we do get in, into the next scene and we have Angel being all pretentious reading Sartre. Hey, as a Sartre, as a fan <laughs> of Sartre, hey. I prefer Angel when he's like going on about Charlton Heston movies. True, I know, I know. Over yeah. on I, yeah, yeah. And, you know, hanging out with the Rat Pack. I really prefer once they get into like non-pretentious Angel because it, it's pretentious and broody bullshit. It is pretentious and broody bullshit. He has not found his broody balance. Yeah. Yes, there is a brood. <laughs> well, maybe he was just a fan of, I don't know, the, the Philosopher's Song and Money Python. So not that they mentioned Sartre in there, but still. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you like Sartre. <laughs> Does Angel have electricity? They never really get into what's going on at Crawford Street. Like, I mean, does Angel own it? Personally or in the house? <laughs> <laughs> I just, he's reading by a fire like a 
jackass. <laughs> just makes me so frustrated. It's a 20th century angel for fuck's sake. Kind of is a jackass when he's in his broody mode. I think the real point <laughs> of this scene is James's hilarious physical comedy. I, I was actually going to say that. So good. The, I mean, not even just his physical comedy, also just his flat out comedy. Yeah, the delivery of the lines. Yeah, this this scene is kind of like a precursor to In the Dark when he'll be doing the monologue describing Angel. Yes. yes. Which is better than this, but this is still <laughs> really good. I do have to wonder how Angel doesn't hear Spike. Yeah, well. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. He's just talking to himself. But I, I will let it go rule of funny. Talking in probably drooling. I can't tell if that's meant to be booze. I think it's dribbling boo, down a his little above. I don't know, spittle. but it's it's but glorious. It's, it's, it's so gross great. No matter what. <laughs> James does a really good job in this scene. James is so fucking great. But I guess he's so drunk he doesn't wonder why Angel's still around and reinsold in this scene. He's just like, I'm, I'm gonna bitch at you and then pass it. Yeah, out. I mean, it's, I mean, it works. He's really, really <laughs> wasted. He's very drunk. He's very drunk. <laughs> and another how do vampires work question for this episode. When he gets back to the car, he pours alcohol on the burn wound. <laughs> do vampires get infections? <laughs> I literally, my note. Why pour alcohol on your wound? You are immortal. <laughs> fucking unreal. That's, and it's like, you're True, wasting you don't food. want to waste food. <laughs> Maybe it's not infections. Maybe it's just like, you know, formaldehyde. It's to keep the the flesh from disintegrating because even though he's immortal, he's still undead. So it's kind of keeping him. Drink I thought it was just a matter of got back to the car to like get away from the the sunlight. But he still wanted to like put himself out or, you know, and it's like this is this is as cold as I have it. I don't know. Uh, yeah. You it's know. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it's stupid. Okay. But. It's, it's funny. funny. And he is funny. We just chalk it up to they don't care how vampires work. They've never cared. <laughs> no, they will never that. care unless it's plot relevant. It's shooty eye beam vampires. We can write it off also with Spike is kind of dumb when it comes to these things. So he's just doing what he would have done <laughs> as a human and doesn't think about what vampires might do or not do. But we get into the oh. next scene and hey... It's the magic box actually being the magic box. The counter's in a different place, Woo-hoo! but yeah, it's Ooh. the same shape as the magic box, yeah. It is the, it is it the is. magic box It is set. the magic box the, It is definitely, it's just, I think, when the next donor takes it over, they, they change it around a bit. They don't actually refer to it as the magic box, though, do they? No, they don't, but they, they definitely set up that a couple of magic shop owners die over the course of the next couple of seasons, and they est- they establish <laughs> that this is the same store. And if you actually do look at the set there, it is the same set. And you look at it within relation to the rest of the street, it's where the magic box is. Yeah, so so I, yeah, no, it's very I, I do think it's the magic box, whether or not it has the same name. And, okay, like, I'm sorry this lady dies and everything, but um, way to casually support rape spells there, shop owner. Yeah. yeah. So here's... <laughs> oh. You're doing real great. I give her points for, we don't carry leprosy. That's <laughs> just a <laughs> great <is>. line. <laughs> I don't carry as any sort of uh, physical ailment, but rape is fine. Sorry, just ignore me, y'all. Right. No, no, no. I... You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, and Spike is hilarious here too, but then Willow comes in. And here's what I have to say about Willow. It, and we're going to see this going forward for the rest of eternity. She looks to magic to fix everything. So she looks for external ways to solve her problems and never without actually confronting and looking at 
her internal the problem and just saying you know what we're not doing this anymore i'm through it's over no you know stop yeah she just looks for a way to make it better with magic and to manipulate somebody else whether to get to fix the problem rather than talking them through it's you know she does it here i'm gonna make us not let make you not love me anymore what does she do to tara the just the opposite yeah it's just she's always it's it's very much big manipulation and it's very frustrating and it's consent and it's consent issues Willow has a problem with consent. I had my notes on this when they were actually starting the delusting, but yes, everything that you guys said is completely right because Willow uses magic as an easy fix and everything. And what she's doing with Xander, it's like, okay, she's not doing a love spell. It is taking away his free will because Xander is honestly attracted to her. That is his, he, he is well within his rights to be attracted to Willow, whether or not they are together is you know is a completely separate issue but people are attracted to other people and you can't stop whether you're attracted to them right he's entitled to his feelings right wrong or indifferent towards her and it also it's not like he's assaulting her in the street so she's doing a binding spell which is much more of the okay i'm just going to keep you from from doing bad things to me or anybody else this is i'm going to take away and 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 mess with your emotions and mess with your attraction or or your your hormones or whatever you want to call it that he feels towards her and that's wrong essentially she he's she's she's not dealing with his actions she's dealing with his thoughts yeah and and his emotions which is wrong she is trying to control him and make decisions for him and she is not dealing with the fact that if you don't want to be with xander don't be with xander then don't fucking be with xander just don't kiss him just have an ounce mm-hmm. of self-control woman <laughs> and was it last week where he, he we got the whole no means no from him it's like well then fucking say no willow and put your foot down and say we're not doing this end of and so therefore she's manipulating him because she can't control herself. And that's really very frustrating. I would have more respect for her if she did a spell on herself to take away her own attraction to Xander. I mean, that is still trying to make an easy fix and not taking responsibility for your own actions. But at the very least, that would not be non-consensually trying to change somebody's thoughts and feelings. That would be her choice. Was she not? Was she not? I, I always thought um, it was like a, a twofer thing. I think she was doing a twofer here. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, the, it was delusting for everybody, but it it's she, she did not talk to Xander. Xander never said, okay, do this for me too. And knowing how her spells work, like nobody in Sunnydale might ever have sex again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, that's you know? yeah, right. <laughs> and sadly, she will get better at doing spells yep. without asking people's consent. Oh, yeah, right. Because here, at least, she's just terrible at it, and Xander figures it out right away. Later, she will get much better at hiding this, and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, spoiler, spoiler, but she straight up rapes Tara. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. But... Much more pleasant conversation now because we have a scene mayor. And so we're going to talk about selling Yay! souls for golf games. So, yeah. And so like, here's the other thing I was going to point out when I said, oh, it's so nice that they weave this in and they're remembering to weave this in. Here's another thing where they do it. Alan is just not some one-off character we get in the one episode where Faith accidentally kills him. Alan is woven through this season and I'm not saying like we're like in love with Alan. He works for an evil dude, but we see who Alan is. He's kind of nebbish. He's kind of nerdy. He's like sort of a grunt that takes the orders. He's afraid of the mayor, but you get him. You get him consistently and just having him every now and then really works to hit that plot home that we're going to get to soon. 
And interestingly, in the credits, he still doesn't have a name. He's listed as Deputy Mayor. Okay, well, I think in uh, this episode, this is the first time that he actually receives a name. I think the mayor calls him Alan at one point. I mean, like, we're not in love with him, but I am really interested in what his backstory is. Because obviously, he's super scared of the mayor, but he is also completely aware of everything that's going on with the mayor. So the mayor trusts him enough to tell him all of this stuff and is it just that the mayor knows how scared he is and he's it's all based off intimidation or what is finch's level of involvement i find it very interesting and i think jack platnick does a really good job with this character setting up that for every episode there does seem to be this hesitance in him and i i think he's he's a really good character actor he turns up in a bunch of stuff I mean, we're going to find out he's going to try to come to the Slayers for help. And so it is. It is setting up. It's really subtle. And I don't think we need that much Alan Finch backstory, but it's there. It's like there in the characterization by the actor. It's there in the writing. Yeah, I think it's like pretty genius what they did in the writer's room to make sure he's in these scenes. We know the character. We at least are aware of who he is, what he does. He's not a one-off. So when things happen to him when faith does kill him however accidentally we care because we know who he is it's somebody that you know it's not like some random dude you know on the street that she suddenly accidentally knocks off or runs over with a car whatever the hell he's a guy that we at least have some connection to and some and and we care enough to like be oh my god that guy yeah we've talked about this in previous episodes especially beauty and the beast which i actually just went back and listened to debbie and pete we didn't give that much of a shit about them because we didn't know them because we never saw them before we never interacted right we never interacted and we're, we're interacting with alan enough to like be like oh okay we don't have to love him but that we know who he is is significant but i do want to point out one interesting thing because you know alan we think of him t- typically as this guy, he's scared of the mayor, he goes to the Slayers, and, you know, so we think of him as this sort of benign character, but as far as we can tell from this episode, he's the one who sends the vampires after Spike. There is that, and which is one of the reasons why, and when I say I would like a backstory, it's like I don't need an entire episode about Alan Finch, but I mean, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, like, the Star Wars books will do, like, an anthology series where it's like, let's focus on all of, like, the background characters who aren't like main characters and they'll do like a 2000 word story on who these characters are i would love if they did that for buffy and angel and we were able to get stories about you know like finch or the chinese slayer so what you're saying is you want an alan finch comic book I want to be able to edit a Buffy the Vampire Slayer anthology about, like, all of the random (laughs) characters. Please call me! And it's a little bit like, um, I mean, that's what I think Russell C. Davis did a little bit with Love and Monsters on Doctor Who. I mean, I know that's one of those episodes that people either love or hate. But again, you're getting, like, the backstory and just a little bit of, like, people, you know, how the Doctor interacts with people that you normally don't see after a while. and, And gives you a little bit of, which is nice. It's always nice to get those little touches and to learn more but like i said you know it's nice that he's just not some one-off person that you know faith kills and we're like oh who cares we actually do care and we and we're curious enough about him to want an anthology which i think would be a really cool idea harry grainer in this is so funny oh he's so good with the like the thing about the loose cannon rocking the boat and then he like works out his own he's like well i guess boats have can he's like well it's just another just small moment where i'm like you know i i think the mayor might be my favorite villain just for the sheer fun of him i also love him talking about what happened in last season 
it establishes that the mayor is not somebody new. Like, we did have mentions of him last season, but having him talk about everything that Spike did last year and how amused he was, it's like, oh yeah, the mayor has been around for a while, and the reason we didn't hear from him last season is because he thought what Spike was doing was really funny, and it wasn't getting in the way of what he was planning. Now it is. Yeah, which is great, because honestly, if if they didn't have stuff like this, I'd be the first person going, why didn't we hear about the mayor before? Yeah, no, it works. It really works. To <laughs> I mean, we did hear about the mayor actually last season, but why Why wasn't the mayor involved? Yeah, it's just a sentence of two to be like, okay, mayor knows about all this stuff and he's just, he's fine with it. And so like, it really, there's not as many holes to poke, which we tend to, yeah. And that's kind of why it annoys me when there are holes, because it's so easy to remedy. Yeah, and usually just with a line or two. Yeah, exactly. Just a line or two and you're good. Yeah, we know that they can do better because we see them doing it right here. So when they don't do it, it's... Yeah, I, I totally feel you on that. So I just... I just a good scene. We get a small scene of Angel and Buffy together. And Buffy's telling Angel all about her college prospects. And again, I think a lot of the scenes from this season are just showing how ill-suited Buffy and yeah. Angel really are. Because they have now gotten past the forbidden love lust for all eternity thing and Buffy has grown up and Angel has I don't want to say he's grown up I, I think that he's matured and emotionally a little bit and they're both realizing that oh so there's real life that's going on and we can't just pour ourselves into this forbidden love and you're gonna go to college and talking about oh Angel could follow Buffy off to college I think one thing that we've established throughout this episode, and not, not just this episode, but this season, is that Angel doesn't want to follow Buffy to college. And he will come to this decision later on. He realizes that Buffy needs to grow up from this forbidden love, and she needs to go on and live her own life. He, of course, realizes it long before she does. <laughs> Well, you know, she's 17. Still comes back to town and goes all Dawson on her. I'm sorry, he he takes it on long before she does. I think they both know it, even at this point. Yeah, but if you think about it, she's, what, 17, 18, and he's whatever age he is, because that keeps changing, but 200 and something. So yeah, he, he should have some more maturity than her and some more awareness than her. They are trying to talk as friends. They're trying. They're making an effort. There is longing. I think Sarah and David... Their chemistry is really based on this longing and pining. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a different kind of chemistry. And Sarah's hair is so cute right here. I can't even. Well, I mean, I do like these scenes a lot better between them in this season than I did in season two when we were all like, I love you so much. In this, they are trying to be friends. And I can see that David and Sarah have a lot of chemistry together. But I like that because of who these two characters are, that they're kind of coming to the conclusion that we can't be together. I think that's true about this season. It is two people that fell so wildly in love figuring out that they're maybe not the most compatible. I mean, it's still the grand love that Angel's going to remember forever and doomed love. But that's a trope. You know what I mean? That, that's a, a trope we see in a lot of things, not just Buffy. And so it, it is some sort of, it's their journey. And I think a lot of people, young people, because, you know, Buffy's young and Angel is, when he was turned, was in his late 20s. You know, young people. 
uh, oh my God, I feel so old right now. You young people. But like, it's something that you sort of have to discover for yourself <laughs> as your life goes on, how relationship works, what works, what doesn't work. And so I don't mind Buffy and Angel in this season because they both need to come to the conclusion that, yeah, that they just don't work. You know, I think Angel's curse is not having his soul. I think Angel's curse is having corruption with all of these, you know, strong warrior women because he's always having these like really strong connections with these strong warrior women that he ends up not being able to be with because they're all strong warriors who need to, you know, have these big (laughs) destinies where they can't be together. But I mean, of course, Angel's true love is his son. That is true, 100%. From one doomed love to another, yeah, we gotta talk about them again. We've talked about a lot of the issues. We've talked about a lot of the issues, but yeah, we've got Willow and Xander doing their de-lusting. I do like, it smells like church, evil church. (laughs) Well, Xander, as much as we hate him sometimes, he's still got decent lines. He's again, and it's Nikki's delivery. Nikki's delivery is always spot on in those like sort of he speaks Joss language better than, you know, he and Sarah both really have that handle on how to deliver those kind of lines. So, yes, we have our delusting. Willow is saying that he needs to study for chemistry or whatever bullshit excuse she uses. And Oz and Cordelia (laughs) are going to meet them there later. And still Xander's trying to seduce her. Xander's, you know, a guy of a certain age and he's horny. What can you... He's... No, he's horrible is what he is. He's horrible. And I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying that's part of it is that he's just horrible and horny and... I'm going to have, you know, I mean, towards the end of this episode when, like, they think they're going to die, it's like, we're in this situation. What's Xander thinking about? Let's make out. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, as as they say on Cinema Sins, the power of boners is stronger. <laughs> it is, it is just really... Logan, okay, so listeners, <laughs> since you can't see us, Logan makes her notes on actual note cards. And she holds them up to the camera for us to show us when she's made a, a note that is exactly the thing we just said. And that one yeah, said, that rude, said rude kissing. Bike comes in and he kidnaps Willow and Xander. And Xander yeah. gets the crap beat, beat out of him. Yay. Yay. Mm-hmm. Hooray! Uh, (laughs) And because we need Spike to stick around, nobody thinks to, like, stake him with a pencil or anything that's lying around that he just kind of comes in and does the thing. Nobody stakes anybody in this show for, like, five minutes. To be fair, staking Spike with a pencil, Buffy could stake him with a pencil because she's the Slayer, but I don't think that Willow and Xander would have the muscle to do it. Willow stakes somebody with a pencil later on, but she does it magically, and she hasn't quite learned that yet. So I will pa- give them a pass on that. But it seems like nobody ever even tries, you know, oh, it's a vampire, let's try and drive a stake through them. This will, of course, be my continuing problem. Right, but we we need him to stay around, so he's going to be a continuing character. Or even if he wasn't, he was still going to leave at the end of this, so it's okay. But it's just me being sarcastic of, and also picking up on David's thing that, well... There's a vampire here. We just fight them. We don't actually try to, like, get rid of them the way you would get rid of a vampire. In defense of Xander and Willow... A phrase I was not expecting to hear in this episode, but go ahead. They don't have the fighting skills. They're taken by surprise. Sometimes fight or flight is a funny response about what you're going to do. Grab Xander really quickly. It's just, you know, it's it's they're not equipped to deal with it even though he's drunk. So, and of course, the writers are not going to I'm going to point this out later. There there's so many opportunities to kill Spike here, and nobody wants to actually kill Spike. Spike is so pathetic, and I have to say as much as I love this episode, 
This is the beginning of the end for Spike. Spike's whole motivation for most things is his relationship, right? Like he's that person that defines himself based on his relationship. You're going to see it with Drew. You're going to see it with Buffy. His self-worth is totally wrapped up in if someone is loving him or not, which like it's funny to talk about psychology when it's a vampire, but it is. It's Spike's psychology. By the end of the series, we'll see the extremes to which he'll go to for his relationship. And also we know or we'll find out eventually that this is who he was before he was a vampire who was just carried over into his his vampire life. Well, I mean, if you actually look at it, Spike is really a serial monogamist because he is with Drusilla for like ever. And then when Drusilla breaks up with him, then he's with Harmony and he's actually with Harmony for quite a long time. Yes, he treats her like shit. But he's with her. In the history of vampire dating, they've been together for like a hot second. But like, you know, it's like six months in like human time. I want to talk about this scene with the acting and the writing when they're, they're in, the, in the warehouse. Because Allie and James, this is really interesting because this is the first scene that Spike has had with any of the Scoobs outside of Buffy. And I really like their chemistry together. I like the callback to this scene in season four. Which I think was really cute and fun. But I I like them acting off of each other. I think it works really well. I was not one of them, but there were a lot of Spike and Willow shippers. There were. Back in the day. I can see it, totally. And I think a lot of it was based off the fact that James and Allie have a really good chemistry together. I mean, there's some horrible stuff that happens in this scene. But they do work well together. And it's also funny. And there's also the pathos. And there's a, and there's a little bit of empathy, weird empathy in there, too. Like when she's just sort of patting his <laughs> yeah, head and, they're there. you know, <laughs> you poor thing. Well, I think it's interesting because I don't know if there's empathy there, honestly. Like I watched this really closely and I actually went back and watched it twice. Spike gets really scary with her and Allie's big eyes do tons of that acting. And then he starts flipping and he's funny funny spike monologuing but Allie's eyes are still really frightened she's scared she is really really scared and even if in the there there it's funny I've talked about this multiple times especially with like Buffy and Giles or Sarah and Tony but there's some real good scene partner work going on I I have a degree in theater so there's some really great scene partner work in there that leads to a really good chemistry and they're just like they're playing off each other so well and i think it's great performances on both sides willow does look scared throughout the scene and i think with the whole there there and everything she's trying to placate him because a pathetic self-loathing spike is much better than an angry spike who is trying to get her to do things because she says later our best hope is that he gets drunk and passes out Oh, yeah, it's very, it's very smart what she's doing. She's, she's very smart, but they are really great together. And Spike and Willow will have some really great scenes in the later seasons. And this is the first one we see. And it's really nice. I like Spike with the other Scoobies. Uh, I think that he ends up developing a really good relationship with them. But yeah, this is kind of the beginning of the end of, we, we don't really see the quote unquote big bad really after this yeah he this is kind of the start of him it's on tv tropes uh they call it badass decay now 
But when TV tropes first started, the trope was actually called spikeification. I mean, and I like all versions of Spike. I'm going to have problems with them later. But yeah, and then Willow, Willow's it, Willow really uses her smarts in this scene because he gets all, mm, let me smell you aggressive. And then she's like, wait, stop. Like she uses all her smarty pants cards in the scene in a really, really good way. And I think it's well blocked. You know what I mean? It's well blocked. It's well written. Uh, it's incredibly well acted. And it's just this really great, fine balancing line. That's why I like this episode so much because it is. It's really, it's smartly done with some good mm-hmm. character moments of showing how the Scoobs work out their problems and how they do it. I mean, in, in terms of logistical vampire problems, not their actual emotional problems, because they don't. <laughs> just oh, no, since no, we mentioned, well, since I mentioned the Spike and Willow shippers before, and uh, Logan, you mentioned that the scene is called back later on. And I mean, like, it is kind of gross because it's, you know, a little, you know, rapey in its way. But, you know, of course, the vampire biting has always been related to sexuality. And especially with Spike, it has actually been pointed out, Spike always bites women. There's only, like two times that I think that he bites guys and one time you don't actually see it. It was something that was mentioned later on that he he's the one who turned Holden. Under, but he turned Holden under the control of the first. Under control. Yeah, there, there is that too. So it's, it's always, especially with Spike, a very sexualized thing. And when he brings it up later on in, um, I can't remember what episode, I think maybe it was the initiative or something. But once... He brings it up. Spike's as pathetic and drunk as he is. He's into Willow in that in that scene. Oh yeah, and I think also Spike, in his own weird way, is like one of those people that like he just wants to be loved so badly in his own like weird way. Like I'll take her. I don't have Drew, so I'll be with this girl now because she's kind of cute, you know. I'll 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 show Drew. I'll hook up with a redheaded witch. I love that seasons later they call back slime and antlers like it is one of my favorite callback is that in the seventh season uh no it's in uh fool for love it's in the fifth season oh it's in the fifth yeah i mean they call it back and i'm just like oh my i just love that when i saw that demon and we'll talk about that again when we get there but god i love he's all slime and antlers but then we get to buffy working out in the library and i do have a bit of trouble believing buffy would be working out in the library if giles wasn't there yeah. Well, I mean, it's where she usually trains. Where well, would she I mean, go? She, it's, she's just doing, you know, she's doing jump rope. It's like, why the library? But I mean, I know why it's in the library, because... It's a standing set. All I have about this, it says library and lab, and it says they mostly just get us through the plot of the kidnapping. Cordy is adorable. Yeah, they, they get us through the, the plot and the kidnapping, and then... Buffy gets the phone call from her mom who wants to talk about schools and hello Joyce let's talk about this scene my biggest note was this scene is the best and I won't put up with anyone who says otherwise I won't you have broke her no argument for me man I can't argue yeah it's an incredible scene I love them so much Spike and Joyce scene. Spike and Joyce are always wonderful together. Even last season. Absolutely. Incredible. I really wish they'd had a little more time before Angel (laughs) showed up so they could really work out their money laundering through the gallery scheme that we came up with a couple episodes. (laughs) We we wanted to to know how Joyce was actually making the money at the gallery. And we came up with this whole great plot of like, 
oh, her and Spike are money laundering stolen artifacts to the gallery. And I'm like, you know, this would have been the perfect setup for that. But <laughs> Christine's line readings are great. She sounds very unreasonable. And like, Xander's a witch? Like, yes. any other way? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> The thing I love, he's clearly giving Joyce the exact same sob story, almost word for word, that he gave Willow. I just, I love it. (laughs) I will bet you a thousand dollars that there are at least a dozen other people between Brazil and Sunnydale that have heard that story in some bar. (laughs) Again, Spike is one of those people that when he's brokenhearted, he will just like cry on anybody's shoulder that he can find. And it's always the same thing over and over again. But I was going to say that I love the fact, and I think they do this later on, that when he shows up and we see Joyce, it's like, dun, dun, dun. And, you know, they set it up as like such a, you know, an evil, something bad is going to happen. And then, no, they're sitting there kibitzing at the goddamn kitchen table and he's and he's crying on her shoulder and she's like accepting it and they're there and tell me more and oh my god and i love that it is the defied expectations which is like one of the reasons why i love the last jedi it's like when you set something up to be one way and it's like no we're gonna go this way instead and this happens a couple of times in this episode and i love it yeah no it's really good comedy and it's really smart writing as, as we've said before it just it works really well and unlike everybody else that spike is telling this story to over and over again joyce is actually actively listening there's not an agenda or that she's not just annoyed with it like everybody else is right it's like oh god the vampire the drunk vampire is going on and on about the slime demon again she's genuinely sympathetic yeah she's sympathetic and the mar and the marshmallows looking asking for the marshmallows but she can relate to it because hank left her for you know whoever she did so she actually can feel some some actual empathy you know sympathy for him because she knows what he's going through but even though he rejects that completely right and also she's being a mom this scene is the first one that really sets up well first of all joyce is not afraid of spike at all in this scene she should be but she's not she should be but she's not well because as far as she knows that this is one of buffy's allies she hasn't known spike as a bad guy except for that first episode and she's like oh well they they got over it now so i'm just going to and but this is the start (laughs) and it will be called back in forever when spike brings the flowers to buffy's house joyce is treating spike like a person in this scene which is nobody else has done that on the show so far like even drusilla kind of treats him like a plaything meanwhile joyce is talking to him like a person and somewhat of an adult where it's like oh well you know every couple has these issues she never treats him like a monster And I think that's, it's the start of the beautiful Spike and Joyce friendship, which will go through until the middle of season five. And it's one of my favorite minor relationships in this show. Yeah, no, it's lovely. Oh, me too. I I love the Spike-Joyce relationship. It's, and and that's the thing, it it, it goes back to her. I think it's what you're saying, you know, it's, it's, again, she doesn't have another agenda. She doesn't, she's not worried about him because he's a vampire for whatever reason. I mean, granted, not a good idea, but she's not. She's not involved with him. She's not, he's just this guy who's kind of broken up. And she's met him before and they had a perfectly pleasant conversation about how she hit him in the head. And, (laughs) you know, and now he's just like really broken up and she's like, no, it's, I, I, she has no other thing except to treat him as a person. (laughs) 
Whereas everyone else has something else that's going on with Spike. And I feel so bad for Joyce in this scene because she is trying to be really nice to Spike and she has every reason to be nice to Spike. And I don't, if Angel had not shown up, then I don't think Spike would have done anything threatening to her. No, no, not at all. I don't, I didn't, oh no, neither. I, I think, I think Spike likes her. You know, I don't think she would be, I mean, obviously he's going to like, if, if it was just Buffy that came in, there definitely would have been words and he would have like, you know, but I, he, there's no intention of hurting her. The, no. the whole thing with what he's doing behind Joyce, which is super funny. And that's just him basically, <laughs> so he good. might as well be sticking his yeah, fingers no, in that's his like, ears it's a, it's and going, nanny, 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 yeah. Spike, Spike is doing what Spike does, which is fuck with Angel. I have a question though. Why the fuck is Angel lurking outside Buffy's house? Like, I mean, oh, I, I know, no like, idea. Angel has... Because the plot calls for... Uh, isn't that what Angel he does? A habit he's of a that, creepy bastard? But he seemed to do that a lot more, like, before they were, like, in a relationship. And at this point, considering they're just friends, it seems super inappropriate. And I yeah, know it's there you're for, right. the, for the plot. But also, it's like, Angel, why the fuck mm-hmm. are you there? And I feel really bad for Joyce because no one tells her stuff. No one tells her anything. Because Buffy doesn't tell her you should, you know, look out for Spike. It doesn't tell her that Angel is back. And we actually don't really get a follow-up on that, about everything that happened with Angel. That, you know, Joyce has every reason to be afraid of Angel. And Buffy just says, you know, Angel, come in. Joyce doesn't know that Willow's a witch. And there's all of this stuff. She's like, Xander's a witch? I do love that. (laughs) She doesn't know Xander's a witch. (laughs) If Buffy wants her mother to actually accept everything that is in her world, there needs Mm -hmm. to be a level of transparency that I don't think that Joyce is getting. Right. There should be communication. But I mean, that's, I mean, for better or worse, this is all drama. 90% of stuff that happens in all performance, all stories, is people not telling each other shit. Well, that's the entire plot of Romeo and Juliet, that there's no communication. Yeah. It's every farce ever written. Like, we all want to be good communicators in our life and be healthy, but that is not good drama. You know what I mean? It's just not. (laughs) Yeah, but I I agree with MC in that, you know, no. And I think that's the other reason in a weird way that because Joyce is sitting down and talking to Spike and Spike is talking to Joyce, which is more communication than Joyce kind of has with her own daughter and her daughter's friends so or even giles so yeah we get into the next scene with cordelia and oz going after giles but they end up not getting there because oz smells willow cordy and oz are so cute they are cute yeah okay uh, <laughs> again a nitpick i have i have a note here um if oz was able to spell smell willow as they're driving around how come he could never smell xander on willow or willow on xander um, i i mean fair point Oz is not a jealous human being. He's just not. So if she's he smells them on each other, he's just going to assume that they gave each other a hug or sat together at lunch. Like, there's no reason for Oz to think that something's untoward is happening. This seems to be, like, the first time that he realizes that he can smell Willow. I mean, Oz always has, like, this level of chill going on, except when Willow's in danger. When Willow's in danger, he will fucking turn on a dime. He will get super protective. And I think that's part of that pack mentality. Well, I mean, it's partially that he's just super in love with her. But also, if you look at the whole <laughs> lycanthropy thing, wolves, you know, are in packs and everything. So 
he specifically mentions when he smells her, he smells her fear. He smells that she's that she's scared. So I think that, you know, that's that's kind of he he's smelling that Willow is, you know, scared. So, I mean, it's it's a really great scene. And I do like this, you know, and I mean, it, and, oh, and actually it does yeah. come up later that when uh, in New Moon Rising, what he will smell Terra on Willow. So certainly that will right. come up mm-hmm. later on. Which is one of the reasons I was like, but yeah, I, I think but... At the, I think now it's mostly a matter of he he smells Xander because Xander's always around Willow. So why wouldn't they they smell like each other? And so yeah, I do think that this is something. Also, he's he's only realized that he can do this right now because of the heightened situation. But yeah, I I, I like this scene and they're they're so oh, funny. Oh, I, I think it's and, adorable. Oh God, these two. And I wish we had more Oz and Cordelia together scenes over the, the course of this series, too. Because they work really, really well together. Yeah. But we get Buffy, Angel, and Spike at the Magic Box. And this is the crux of the episode. And that's James Marsters loves bitch speech. It's a brilliant performance. It is, it is what won him the regular role on the show. I don't think I agree with him, though. I think it's a very high school version of love. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. And everything's always about blood with him. <laughs> well, it's a vampire. <laughs> so metaphors. I don't agree with him overall about love, but I will say this is a show on the WB about high school students, so there is a mentality of this is kind of high school. It's a great speech. And Spike is not really all that emotionally mature in many, many ways. Right, exactly. I'm not saying that there's. it's completely in character for him and it's something that will keep up with him later on. I think later on he gives another speech to Buffy about why he's in love with Buffy. Um, I think it's in touch. And then it's almost like a match to this speech where this speech is all about how love is all-consuming and that speech later on is a much more realistic, grown-up version of what love is. And, you know, that's something that happens over time. Uh, I do think that this is a fantastic speech and it's exactly what Angel and Buffy need to hear. And yeah, James knocks it out of the park. And it's one of those things where we're going to see this going forward when James comes back is Spike is a lot more intuitive than anyone ever gives him credit for. He's able to pinpoint issues from the outside. He's not great about being intuitive about his own issues, but you'll see in season four, he's really good at picking out what's going on with people when it's not like he'll do it in family. Right. When he punches Tara in the nose, he's good at seeing the dynamics that are happening from the outside. And other people aren't always able to see because they're too enmeshed in it. And it's a great speech. And he's really great. And he's so funny. And I will, you know, I'm a huge Buffy stripper and I will be always. But I kind of miss this spike sometimes, too. I, I do miss this spike. And him and Sarah bickering and banter throughout the back half of this episode. It's so fun. You know, it's so fun. It's such an interesting dynamic. And I could see why the writers wanted to put them together <laughs> eventually, even though some of that was really, like, misguided and some of it was good. And we'll get into that, you know, as we go forward. But, like, they have such a fun, kind of like Cordy and Xander before they got together, that real bitchy bantering back and forth. But it's such an easy chemistry that I'm just like, oh, no wonder I got so into this. And I want to give a shout out to James and the writers for something that happened, I think, just before this. The, we killed a homeless man on this bench bit. 
Oh my God, that is such a great bit. So great, it is. That is so great. <laughs> it's like, like it's such a, just like they just stick it in there and it just works. And James just pulls it off brilliantly. <laughs> and we get Willow and Xander deciding that they, they're making a, an exception for a near-death experience and Cordelia and Oz walk in. Okay, but but just one thing, and we've talked about this before. David, what did you think of Willow's sweater? Because I thought it was amazing. Oh, it's a it's a pink and gold sweater, and I love it. It didn't jump out at me. It's a fuzzy. It's it's a quote spike that fuzzy (laughs) thing with the lilac underneath. Willow looks great here. It's yeah. I you know it's one of those things Mm. here where if. They had like actually been good and not and, and avoided each other and like we didn't have this other build up before that and then they suddenly were in this life or death situation and they made out. I think I could have accepted it. But the fact that it's been building and they they can never stop, I just want to punch them both in the face. I don't care if they think they're dying. I am so grossed out by them kissing. <laughs> like the the chemistry is not don't there. It's dying. gross. It's like kissing your sister. I would have been much more okay with this entire plot line, and this, I think, very much what you were saying, Jan, if they had had the clothes fluke, and they had actually been awkward around each other, and not had any other, like, you know, these, like, smooching and playing footsies and shit. Let me bite your ear and that crap. And then... In this life or death situation, they gave in to those feelings that had been simmering. I would like them a hell of a lot more over this whole plot line. Right, because then you can accept that, okay, they actually think they're going to die and they think this is the last thing they're ever going to do. So they might as well go out, you know, having something together. With a bang? As it were. So once again, we need to get a TARDIS so we can go back and write this stuff ourselves. Because then it would actually be really poignant (laughs) and painful because they would know they were doing something wrong, but okay, we're going to die anyway, so we might as well do something. Not like be obnoxious little brats and then break Cordy and, and Oz's hearts as they walk into the room. And not just break Cordy and Oz's hearts, but break Cordy. The way Charisma says, I fell. It kills me. And and the fact that at this point in the world, there's no phones around to call 911. I mean, like, Oz is going to go get help, but, like, this is not like it is today where you're like, shit, 911, and someone would be there a lot quicker. This is like... No, you have to run and find an actual phone and or a pain phone. Yeah, it's like life, life or death, really. Cordy could have been really really hurt. She was stabbed to the chest with rebar. They said it missed internal organs. It came out right through her left lung. Fight me on it. Yeah, see, I don't buy that at all. I like... Again, I'm going to quote CinemaSins here. Cordy survives this is totally beyond belief. A bit of trivia, because I I read about this. Actually, I guess Charisma had had some kind of accident as a kid that was supposed to have been exactly like this. Oh, wow. Charisma fell into an incomplete swimming pool and a piece of rebar went through. And I believe they actually wrote this in to, like, explain the scar. Like, uh, you do see the scar a couple of times on um, Angel and they they might like add some stuff to it but it is based off of the real scar that she had so fascinating and she did obviously wow. she survived it so i guess it is survivable even though it looked really unbelievable wow. yeah. in terms of how is she still alive and why didn't that go through her lung or her liver or something Honestly, right? but but to be fair xander should be dead too with that that blowy tip yeah. to the head so well, Charisma, if you're listening, we love you so much. Then we leave them to get into a fight. And I have n- nothing to say about this fight scene other than 
Buffy saying, I violently dislike you to Spike. Oh my god, that's in my notes too. And I say that to be, I have said that. Not, yes. not maybe. <laughs> so do I. Cases, but I have certainly said, oh, I violently dislike that person. The way I say it is I actually mm-hmm. say it to like people that I like. Ah, knowing that knowing that I'm like joking, like if usually if somebody makes a bad pun or something, I'll be like, I violently dislike you. Oh, you know what? I think you've said that to me before. <laughs> I'm almost. I'm probably. Almost, yeah. <laughs> I, was say, I think you I've heard that, that from to you me. to me. Also, and, and also, you can say that to me, and I'm gonna know what your reference is. Like I'm like, oh, you're so cute. Well, Let yes. No, it's a great line. It's a really good line there. I'm, I have a real problem with this fight because I feel like it's just there because they need to have a fight because it's called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, it's it's what did we say in a couple episodes ago? It's like a kicky, punchy, fighty. I do. I do. will say that I noticed that Spike quips during his fights the way that Buffy quips during her fights is an interesting parallel. He's like, baby needs a nap. Baby, baby can have a nap. He's not really good at it, though, yet, because that baby stuff is pretty terrible. <laughs> it is, but he does, he does kind of, you know, he, he talks through his fights. Angel's not much of a talker during his fights at this point anyway, but I just thought it was an interesting parallel. Once he gets on to his own show, he, he will become more of it. But he doesn't quip the same way that Buffy does. I mean, Spike doesn't quip the exact same way Buffy does, but he's he talks. And I love his brawler style in comparison to Buffy and Angel's fighting mm-hmm. styles. And and for once, I'm not upset that he doesn't just stake vampires because Spike just likes beating the shit out of people. So he's doing because he likes it. This episode, like, I mean, the whole point is just like Spike shows up and you know, causes some trouble and the couples break up. But I mean, like the whole plot of vampires come after Spike. It's like, we're going to have a fight. And then the fight ends and Spike's like, oh, I'm leaving town now. <laughs> It was just in there because they had to have a fight. I think it's an obligatory fight scene, but it's funny. It's it's fun. Also, it gave the mayor and it gave Alan something to do because they sent the vampires after them, right? What I want to know is Lenny does not seem to know who Buffy and Angel are. How is that possible if he used to work for Spike? He's they're not they're not they're not his mission. He's been given parameters, but no, but no, but still, it's like you guys could leave. I, I don't know. And it's like a uh, Slayer. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. He doesn't want to tangle with the Slayer because he knows that he can't take her. And then we have Cordelia, the fake out with Cordelia. When I first saw this, fuck them. I I thought they might have actually done it. Oh, I actually was like, that's a that's a fake out. I knew it was a fake out. Well, I was fifteen at the time, so. But but you know, we talked about the fake out with Spike coming in like looming menacingly over Joyce, and then they just have tea. Or Coco. The way that's written and performed and shot works. This doesn't. Because, first of all, it goes on way too long. <laughs> so you're just like, yeah, this is totally a fake out. And uh, it just, no, it's, yeah. Buffy is way supporto gal here. Like, that sh- I, I like I like seeing this. And we said this in our last episode. Buffy would have supported and listened to Willow's side and not blamed her. She would have said, you know, Willow, this isn't a good thing, but... I like seeing that in this this moment of their actual friendship coming through there. And Willow's purple outfit, I want it. Not as a 90s outfit, as today. I would wear that right now. Funny thing, I mean, like, because, like I said earlier, like, they've been found out. And all of a sudden, we're into this whole thing of, let's forget this thing ever happened. 
And I mean, like, I'm really glad that they do that. But also, I, I'm I, I am kind of surprised from Xander's side of things that Xander doesn't try to pursue a relationship with Willow. And I also just, yes, Queen Cordy! Dump his cheating, pathetic ass. Well, and you know what? I'm not even yay Queen Cordy because she's not Queen Cordy in that moment. She's like wrecked. Like at having charisma without the makeup on, she's beautiful regardless. But having her stripped of all her courtiness is what really gets to me in the scene. So it's not a quip at Xander. It's not like, it's, you need to be away from me right now. And then the way she... And the way she turns over and is just so broken, it's just, it, it, poor Cordy. She's so broken. I will argue that she is always Queen Cordy. I I just have such mad respect for her for just, and I mean, yes, for not quipping, for just being, it's like, no, go, go away. You. Yeah, this for me is a, a, like, pink, like a peak Cordy scene on this show, so... Right, because she's so hurt and she's so broken by him that she's not even, I mean, because I think Cordy normally gets off on, you know, arguing with people with like having the whole banter thing because that's a very, you know, we've said it's like a 1940s like comedy thing. And here she's just like, no, she's broken. She's just like, she's done with him. And rightly so. Cordelia sets a boundary. And we're going to actually see Oz do that later. We'll talk about an amends. But, you know, and the thing that makes me so angry, she's so vulnerable. She's been vulnerable with Xander. She's been loving towards Xander. And she has every right to tell Xander to fuck out of her life. But Xander is a piece of shit who gets to keep all his friends with no real consequences. Cordelia loses basically all of the friends that she's made over the past like season and a half. Yeah, because she loses the Cordettes and she also kind of gets ostracized by the by the, the Scoobies also. She she doesn't fit in. Which, and she gave up everything to be with Xander. I mean, she like gave up that whole, you know, like mean girl cheerleader vibe thing in order to hang out with the nerds and what does she get for it just like spit in the face by everybody and it's awful she does not deserve that this isn't new i mean she's never been fully accepted she really hasn't Cor- i mean they're not like oh you're our best friend because Xander's their best friend but you know buffy isn't like a dick to cordy going forward but but she does she loses these people that she has been socializing with and it sucks i mean i we will get into it in the next episode of course but cordelia does blame buffy for a lot of what happens and that's right she does she does buffy actually does reach out to cordelia to try to bring her back into the group and cordelia is not having any of it but i do this isolation that goes on with cordelia for the rest of the season is heartbreaking especially when you find out in the prom what's going on in Cordelia's personal life because Cordelia's personal life is falling apart. And she has no one to support her. You know, she has no true friend to support her through that and goes through it by herself. And I love you, Cordy. And I love you, Charisma. Because Charisma is just very silent acting in the scene and in the montages. It breaks my heart. Yeah, and if you think about it, she sacrificed a lot to be with these people and to be with Xander. And she gave up her whole social standing and everything and she gets nothing for it. And... It, and it doesn't even pay off in the end, which sucks. And literally, she has put her life in danger. For It's not just the high school heartbreak. She has put, I mean, she doesn't get in as much fighty stuff, but she was in the group that was vampire killing at the beginning of the season. Um, so she has literally put her life on the line for these people and then has no support when her life goes to shit. I will argue that she does get something from this. She gets the life experience to be able to move on to Los Angeles and become part of Angel Investigations where she finds her real family. True. That is true. I am so looking forward to talking about Angel at this point. 
Really? I, I'm shocked. <laughs> I know, right? I like when I first watched the show, like Cordelia was not a character that I really thought about. But through this new rewatch, I'm like, yes, Cordelia. Cordelia is like one of my Same favorites. Here. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we move into the scene of Buffy and Angel and they're not oh. break up, break up. We're never going to be friends. And Buffy's great in this. Buffy's great. She's grown up and setting her boundaries. I, I've actually had this conversation and I've had it on both sides. Being the receipt, you know, because Buffy said, we can't do this anymore. I have to stay away from you. And Angel being like, but I don't want to. And I've been on the side where I'm the, I don't want to. Trying to be friends with an ex is a really precarious thing. And it doesn't always work. It's, I mean, I, I, I still have many exes that we are very, very close friends. Because, you know, someone may not be for me. That doesn't mean they're to toss them out. But Buffy and Angel have such a complicated relationship. And I remember at the exact same time this episode came out, I was in a relationship and he'd just broken up and we were trying to be friends because we still had to play romantic leads in a play together for four more months and basically having to have this conversation. So like, I totally know what they're both going through and they, you know, Sarah and David play great, play longing really well. They play longing and pining really well. So that's what I have to say about that. But I think like the scene is really kind of setting up Buffy's relationships with her undead lovers Buffy is well because they are they are they have this arrested development in who they are and Buffy is always growing and maturing more than they are because they are kind of stuck in and Angel is kind of still kind of stuck in this whole romantic idea but Buffy is trying to move past it but she's still kind of and we'll see later on that she's still not quite there yet and the same thing will kind of come up with Spike later on where Buffy is continuing to evolve, but they're kind of staying in the same place. I just wish it had some more follow through, but it doesn't. And we get sad montage of everybody. That we don't get that a lot. And I, I just said, oh, Buffy's face, Oz's face, Charisma's face, Willow and Xander's faces can go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was interesting because, you know, as you say, we don't get that much in Buffy. But if you watch TV now... Oh my god, every show has one of these, like, every other episode. Even Rocky had a montage! Isn't that the song from South Park? Yeah. Yeah, basically. Honestly, like, some cover of some sad song over... Oh, it's like, it's some Snow Patrol song done over a montage. Grey's Anatomy is the worst, worst culprit on that. I, I you know, I haven't watched that in ten years, but it's, it's definitely, definitely a culprit. Oh, thank God I don't watch that. But it's but every show does this now. But of course, because this episode has all been about defying expectations, we don't end on the sad montage. We end on Spike. I love it. It's the best button. Oh, 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 oh. I have trivia. I have trivia. <laughs> okay, here's the trivia. The version of my way that Spike is singing along to is actually Gary Oldman from Sid and Nancy, not the actual... Sex Pistols version. Yeah, they, they couldn't get the rights to the, the Sid Vicious version, so they used the one from Sid and Nancy. Which I think is great. And I love I love the I love the button of it. There's the it, it does yeah. sort of it does resolve it on a better note. Great episode. So final thoughts on this episode. I like that it ends with uh, lest you think this episode is about anybody else, you're wrong. It's about Spike. Yeah. And it's gross. Yes. <laughs> Such as it is. 
like a tumor, that kind of growth. It's not doing great. <laughs> or a fungus. I, I think it's a, it's one of my, I wouldn't say favorite favorites. It might not be in my top 10, but it's definitely up there. And it's for a, a myriad of reasons. Part of it is just, it's so funny. It's so well-written. And James is such an MVP in the physical. Like sometimes mm-hmm. we talk about how we don't give these actors enough credits for their actual real physical comedy. And James is one of them. And he's hilarious and amazing. And I'm so glad that the Willow Xander storyline mm-hmm. is left us now and and i'm done i'm done with it i've let it let it go let it go dead yes (laughs) from another whedon film the evil is defeated i really like this one too and this is still the spike that i i I care about and i love because when we get further on down the line i will probably be bitching a lot about spike and the spike and buffy relationship but here he's just perfect and it is it's really well written it's really well acted it's well directed i mean just like the visuals are great and i'm so glad that we can finally drive a stake through willow and xander and and make them go away as a relationship because it's (laughs) awful i mean granted they're gonna be coughing up blood for a little bit because we're gonna get like the fallout of all this but it's gonna go away it's over we don't have to see the two of them attempting to be smoochy together and uh, and just great and, and even like the little things just like oz cordelia you know little, little we had a giles joyce everybody is like really good in this so i am i i probably not top 10 either but it's it's up there and it's, it's really really good and i enjoyed watching it several times it's just a really good episode i mean it's it's great seeing spike back james is terrific as i mean like he really he gives 110% here. And, like, you can see why they said, okay, you're coming back. And <laughs> and also, and again, yeah, the writing. I mean, I this is, I'm going to have to, like, look at Futurama now and see if Dan Weber wrote episodes of Futurama and see which ones. Because he really does a nice job here. I mean, this has a lot of just great stuff. Like, the, the Slime and Antlers is just great. And the whole, and, and the... We killed a homeless man on this bench. It's just, that scene is just so great. It's 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 it's, it's perfect. Spike. <laughs> this episode is really great because it's weird because it's almost like its own little thing because Spike changes the atmosphere so much. Like it does have so many plots that started at the beginning of the season will go through the end of the season, but because Spike is there, it changes everything. And it's just like Spike's gonna come in. And he's going to make these big transitions for everybody in the season. And then he's going to go away and just be happy singing Gary Oldman pretending to be Sid Vicious. And, it, and, it, and it's so wonderful. He, he's, he's, he might be the chaos demon. I mean, you know, forget about the slime and antlers. Uh, a couple of little trivia notes for this episode. This episode's title is misspelled a lot. There is no apostrophe in Lovers. Right, it's just Lovers plural. Yes, uh, because it is basically Lovers Who Walk, rather than referring to Lovers Walk. So it is about the breakup of all of the major couples. You know, some of them get back together. But it's actually something that I didn't find out until I was reading about this episode. And despite only appearing in this one episode... In this season, Spike is still on the CD art for the yeah, season's box set. <laughs> <laughs> Shockingly, considering how much major characters they are, this is the only episode in which Buffy, Spike, and Angel actually share scenes together. Like they will, they will have there are fighty scenes, but they they never oh, actually okay. like yeah, talk to that. each other in the same scene. We got some foreign titles in French. It was frustrated loves. In German, it was love and other troubles. And in Brazil, 
it was love affairs. And in terms oh. of music, we had James Marsters singing Frank Sinatra's version of My Way. We have the Vicious White Kids, a.k.a. Gary Oldman from Sid and Nancy, singing My Way along with James Marsters. And Christoph Beck doing Loneliness of Six. So that mm. is Lover's Walk. And I, th- I think we all enjoyed this episode because we all really like the spike and next week i think we're all going to have some very strong opinions on the episode because we will be reviewing the wish vampire willow that outfit (laughs) not not bored now (laughs) so until then grr arg grr arg grr arg arg. grr arg We'd like to thank everyone who downloaded the podcast, and an extra special thanks to everyone who shared, liked, and subscribed on social media. If you'd like your questions or comments read on the show, you can contact us on our website, returntothehellmouth.com, on YouTube, Tumblr, and Facebook at Return to the Hellmouth, on Twitter at Hellmouth Return, or on email at returntothehellmouth at gmail.com. We'll be sure to read your comments on the show. Be sure to rate our show at iTunes and Stitcher, and check out our show merchandise on TeePublic and Redbubble. Also check out our sister podcasts, Drag Hags and the Trash Compactor podcast. See you on Tuesday. Grr. Arg.